Folks, what does everyone do when shopping online? Well, you jump to the reviews and you see what customers actually think. Well, Bull and Branch did the hard work for you. In a recent customer survey, 96% said Bull and Branch sheets get softer with every single wash. Bull and Branch sheets are made from the finest 100% organic cotton threads on planet Earth. Buttery to the touch, super breathable. Bull and Branch sheets are perfect for both cooler and warmer months. Their luxurious signature hem sheets were made without pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. They really do get softer with every single wash. Best of all, Bull and Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping. Returns on all orders. You're not going to want to return them. We love our Bull & Branch product. In fact, when I'm on the road, I actually travel with their cable knit throw blanket. It is that good. Their product is just awesome. After a long day, nothing feels better than a restful night's sleep in the softest, most luxurious sheets. Sleep better at night with the softest sheets from Bull & Branch. Get 15% off your very first order when you use code BEN at bullandbranch.com. That's Bull & Branch, spelled B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code BEN. Exclusions apply. See site for details, bullandbranch.com. Speaking with ABC News on Wednesday night, President Trump said that he would like to resume the use of waterboarding, stating that it works and that we have to fight fire with fire. But he acknowledged that he would follow the lead of CIA Director Mike Pompeo and Defense Secretary James Mattis, both of whom opposed the use of waterboarding. Trump said, if they don't want to do, that's fine. If they do want to do, then I will work toward that end. I want to do everything within the bounds of what you're legally allowed to do. But do I feel it works? Absolutely, I feel it works. Pompeo has already stated that he would absolutely not comply with an order to waterboard. The media predictably have gone insane. How could Trump say that torture works? Well, first of all, it's actually unclear whether waterboarding is torture. Some people find it to be self-evidently torture, but as Senator Ted Cruz said during the primaries, under the law, torture is excruciating pain that is equivalent to losing organs and systems. This is enhanced interrogation. It is vigorous interrogation that does not meet the generally recognized definition of torture. I've actually watched my friend Stephen Crowder get waterboarded. It looked highly unpleasant, and Stephen's an idiot and nuts for doing it, but he emerged not only unscathed, but he actually joked during the experience. Waterboarding is used regularly to train Navy SEALs. Then there's the second question. Is Trump right? Does waterboarding work? James Mitchell, a former chief CIA interrogator, wrote in the Wall Street Journal last year, quote, it is understandable that General Mattis would say he never found waterboarding useful because no one in the military has been authorized to waterboard a detainee. Thousands of U.S. military personnel have been waterboarded as part of their training, though the services eventually abandoned the practice after finding it too effective in getting even the most hardened warrior to reveal critical information. Mitchell claims that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the man behind the 9-11 attacks, a crucial source of American information about al-Qaeda, only broke because of waterboarding. KSM was waterboarded some 183 times. Crowder, by the way, was waterboarded several times just during the session that I watched by way of contrast. Jose Rodriguez, who once headed the CIA National Clandestine Service, has claimed that terrorist mastermind Abu Zubaydah also gave up key intelligence after being waterboarded. In the, media's, in the media's ardent desire to paint Donald Trump as a nutty dictator in waiting, they've actually made Trump more popular. Again, Trump isn't saying anything that Americans don't believe. A poll from last March showed that almost two-thirds of Americans thought waterboarding was appropriate for use on suspected terrorists. Only 15% of Americans thought waterboarding should be ruled out entirely. Trump has his finger on the pulse of Americans when it comes to rhetoric about fighting terrorism. The media's overstated outrage only makes it clear why Americans trust Trump to fight terrorism rather than the members of the press. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. All righty, so we can jump right 
in today. And we begin with Donald Trump's immigration executive order. So Trump has jumped in with alacrity. He clearly wants to fulfill this promise. Now, I actually thought that he would fulfill some of his promises on immigration. I still am not sure that the deportations are going to look like what he said they were going to look like during the campaign. But the executive order that he signed yesterday makes it look like he is actually going to be just as harsh on illegal immigration as he promised to be during the campaign. So I want to go through this executive order and talk about what exactly was in it yesterday. So first of all, it said that we're going to build the wall. And Trump himself uh, came out and he said this. He was speaking at the Department of Homeland Security, and he suggested that we're building the wall. It's definitely going to happen. When does construction begin? As soon as we can. As soon as we can physically do it, we're... Uh, Within months? Uh, I would say in months, yeah. I would say in months. Certainly planning is starting immediately. And so he says that we're going to pay for that with Mexican money. He's th- That's more vague, how we're going to ex- actually do that. Honestly, I always thought that was a silly part of his promise. I don't care how we pay for, for a barrier between the United States and Mexico. It seems to me a perfectly eminently rational thing to have some sort of touch fence, uh, some sort of barrier that prevents people from simply walking over the border without any sort of detection mechanism in place at all. Israel has a very effective border. There's no reason why exactly the United States should not want to have one at the southern border either. Also, I believe Mexico has some physical borders at its southern border because it doesn't like illegal immigration. Again, I don't see why the United States should be the only country in the world that's not allowed to have one of these things. I've said that all along. Trump was speaking at the DHS, and his rhetoric about enforcement with regard to illegal immigration, I think, is just first rate. Here he is. Because people are surprised to hear that we do not need new laws. We will work within the existing system and framework. And he said also that he's going to ask the members of DHS to enforce the laws to their fullest extent. This is clip one. I'm asking all of you to enforce the laws of the United States of America. They will be enforced and enforced strongly. We are going to restore the rule of law in the United States. A nation without borders is not a nation. Beginning today, the United States of America gets back control of its borders, gets back its borders. You guys are about to be very, very busy doing your job the way you want to do them. Okay, and this is the kind of rhetoric that I think is actually useful with regard to border enforcement. So, you know, good for Trump on all of this. Now, there are a couple of questions about the executive orders themselves. First question is why he's using executive orders and not just passing a law with Congress. There is going to have to be some sort of congressional appropriation to build the wall. It's going to cost something like $15 billion to build the wall. The left, of course, is up in arms about all of this. They're saying that they're very upset about the spending which is ridiculous since the left has never been upset about spending on anything ever. In fact, I'm old enough to remember when the left liked infrastructure spending. Right? This is an infrastructure spending bill. It would just be an infrastructure spending bill to build a physical barrier with, the, with, with Mexico. Now, the, the physical barrier, by the way, is not just designed to keep out, quote-unquote, Mexicans, because the fact is that right now we're, we're neutral in terms of the number of Mexicans coming in and leaving in the United States via illegal immigration. We've actually had a net decline in the number of Mexican illegal immigrants over the past few years. But what Mexico really right now is a giant thoroughfare for people who are coming from South America and Central America in order to get to the United States. Uh, it's, it's not really about Mexicans crossing the border, even though Trump seems to get that wrong pretty routinely. It's more about people who are coming from places like El Salvador and Honduras and, and various countries uh, in South America and who are using Mexico as basically a giant road to get to the north. Paul Ryan says Trump 
you know, says that he's going to spend, that Trump said he's going to do this, well, we'll give him the money to do it. Who's going to pay for it? Well, first off, we're going to pay for it and front the money up. But I do think that there are various ways of, as you know, I know your follow up question is, is Mexico going to pay for the wall? There are a lot of different ways of getting um, um, Mexico to, to contribute to doing this. Now, I'm going to get to how Mexico contributes to doing this and why this is still a silly talking point. It always was a silly talking point. I'll get to that in a second. First, I want to go through the actual content of the executive order. By the way, the ACLU just demonstrates how crazy they are. They say that the wall violates civil liberties. They tweeted out, the executive order President Trump just signed, funding a wall along our southern border, violates civil liberties. Hashtag no ban, no wall. No, it doesn't violate civil liberties. That's plainly silly. Okay, the, why exactly would it violate civil liberties? to build a wall on an internationally recognized border. It's like saying it violates civil liberties to build a fence around your house. Who's civil liberties? The person who wants to break into my house? No, that's not the way this works. Now, as far as the executive order itself, this would be a perfectly legal executive order because it exists within the confines of laws that have already been passed by Congress. In 2006, Congress said that they wanted to build a border fence, and then they didn't fully fund it. So Trump is not doing anything that is outside the confines of legislation that he is now using the legislation in order to push the policy. That's what an executive order is supposed to do. The reason that I opposed Barack Obama's executive orders is because many of them just rewrote the law plainly. Right? He just went in and rewrote Obamacare, for example, or he went and he rewrote immigration law with regard to DACA and DAPA. That's not what Trump is doing here. Trump is saying, and he said it, as you saw at DHS, he said that at Homeland Security, he said clearly, this is the existing law. We're acting within the existing law, and that's exactly right. So what exactly is in this executive order? So in this executive order, he talks about broadening enforcement priorities as well. So it used to be that Barack Obama only wanted to police crimes that were committed other than crossing the border illegally. Section 5C of this executive order now grants the Secretary of Homeland Security power to prioritize for removal those who have committed acts that constitute a chargeable criminal offense. You don't have to be convicted. It's just if you cross the border illegally and we have reason to believe you cross the border illegally, you've committed acts that constitute a chargeable offense, you cross the border illegally, we can now enforce the law against you. This also takes priority to, to false use of a social security number or taking public benefits illegally. The, the order also grants the Secretary of Homeland Security the ability to hire 10,000 additional law enforcement officers. That number really should be 20,000. I believe that 20,000 was the number in, the, in that horrifying Gang of Eight bill even. So that number needs to be increased. The executive order allows states to help police immigration. So you remember, the Obama administration sued the state of Arizona because the state of Arizona had the temerity to try and enforce immigration law. And Barack Obama then tried to sue them for that. Oh, Trump is, is saying now that he wants states to be allowed to do that, that they should be allowed to help perform the functions of immigration officers in relation to investigation, apprehension, detention of aliens in the United States. So he's not banning states from actually helping enforce federal law. This also kills funding to sanctuary cities. That's a little bit of a complicated question because the question is what strings you can attach to funding to particular cities or states. It's actually a complex constitutional question. Can you just withdraw funding from every program in San Francisco because you don't like what they're doing with illegal immigrants? Probably not. You actually have to find the funding that is connected to immigration enforcement in San Francisco and then cut off that funding. There has to be some sort of rational relation between the grants the federal government is giving to a city or a state and the and the acts that the city or state is doing constitutionally, just in terms of Supreme Court jurisprudence. But Trump is attempting to do this. The executive order also creates a public shaming capacity for the feds. So every week they're going to make a public list of criminal actions committed by illegal aliens and any jurisdiction that ignored or failed to otherwise honor federal law. 
Fifth, this is going to restore the Secure Communities Program. So originally, the Obama administration had a program that allowed the feds to check immigration databases to see local offenders who were here illegally. Then they walked that back. They didn't want the feds to be able to check the local criminal databases for purposes of deporting people who are arrested locally. Trump is returning to the original system, which is a great thing. Also, he's saying that he wants to make foreign negotiations contingent on accepting repatriated legal immigrants. So if Poland has an illegal immigrant and they don't want to accept that illegal immigrant back, Trump's saying, I'm not going to negotiate with Poland. I'm going to tell the Secretary of State not to hold negotiations with countries that don't accept back the illegal immigrants that are coming over here. And finally, he wants to make data more transparent. So right now, one of the big problems with illegal immigration and Coulter points this out in her book about illegal immigration, uh, which is actually a, a very interesting book. There's a lot. It's not in God, It's not in Trump We Trust, which is not a particularly interesting book. It's 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 her book about the. It's a book. Her, I've interviewed her on on C-SPAN. We did it actually. Her book about illegal immigration, which is really interesting. She she points out that the data on illegal immigration and crime among illegal immigrants is really incredibly weak, and this would make that data more transparent now. The Secretary of Homeland Security and Attorney General can collect data on immigration status of all aliens incarcerated in federal prisons, as well as federal pretrial detainees and all convicted aliens in state and local prisons. So all of this stuff is good. This is a very good executive order. There's a lot here that's good. There are rumors today that Trump was going to sign some sort of order repealing DACA and DAPA, getting rid of President Obama's executive amnesty. This is, I'm not sure that you actually have to do that, but he hasn't done that yet. Again, I want to see what this looks like in practice. Is he going to go back to enforcing the law, or is this all cover for basically not doing particularly a lot? That's not, that's not clear yet. That'll only become clear in the enforcement, but the executive order itself is really first rate. There's a lot here that is really, really good. Okay, so putting that aside now, Donald Trump did an interview on ABC News that's getting all sorts of play as well. And Donald Trump's interview with ABC News, there was some good and there was some bad. So, you know, now's a perfect time we can play the good Trump, bad Trump. Let's do it. Good Trump, bad Trump, which one will we get today? Okay, so we begin with some good Trump. So Trump had a lot of good things to say during this particular interview with ABC News. So he started off by talking about the media bias. And when Trump hits the media and it's justifiable, I love it. It's my favorite thing in the world. I've been saying for literally years that Republicans ought to smack the media when the media does something wrong. I don't like it when they smack the media when the media actually is telling the truth. And we'll get to that in a second. But I like when they smack the media for doing things that are wrong. So the media for years has ignored the March for Life in Washington, D.C. The March for Life routinely means hundreds of thousands of people marching in the streets of Washington, D.C. in the middle of dead winter in order to march in favor of legislation that would restrict abortions and and the killing of the unborn. And the media every year ignores it. It always goes on page A12 of the New York Times. Donald Trump is talking with David Muir, and he rightly, this is great, he smacks David Muir for not covering the March for Life. We know there were more than a million people who turned out, and you are their president now, too. That's true. Could you hear them from the no, White House? No, I couldn't hear them, but uh, the crowds were large, but you're going to have a large crowd on Friday, too, which is mostly pro-life people. You're going to have a lot of people coming on Friday, and I will say this, and I didn't realize this, but I was told, you will have a very large crowd of people, I don't know, as large or larger, some people said it's going to be larger, pro-life people, and they say the press doesn't cover them. I don't want to compare crowd sizes no, again. No, you shouldn't. I, I, but, what, but let me just say, what they do say is that the press doesn't cover them. 
And that's 100% true. He's totally right to smack David Muir on this. The fact that the press covers this women's march up the wazoo, that happened one time. The March for Life happens every single year, and every single year the media ignores it. Good for Donald Trump. That is Donald Trump at his finest. Donald Trump also talked about torture. We talked about this at the very beginning. Here's what Donald Trump had to say about torture. Are you at all concerned, are you at all concerned it's going to cause more anger? I, I will tell you, I have spoken to others in intelligence, and they are big believers in, as an example, waterboarding. You did tell me. Because they say it does work. You it does work. Mr. President, now, personally, you Mr. President, you told me during one of the debates that you would bring back waterboarding yeah. and a hell of a lot worse. I would words. do what I would do. I want to keep our country safe. I want to keep our country safe. I'm going with General Mattis. I'm going with my secretary because I think Pompeo is going to be phenomenal. I'm going to go with what they say. But I have spoken as recently as 24 hours ago with people at the highest level of intelligence, and I asked them the question, does it work? Does torture work? And the answer was yes, absolutely. We're not playing on an even field. I will say this. I will rely on Pompeo and Mattis and my group. And if they don't want to do, that's fine. If they do want to do, then I will work that end. I want to do everything within the bounds of what you're allowed to do legally. But do I feel it works? Absolutely, I feel it works. So you'd be okay with it I as want president? To keep, no, I want to, no, I will rely on General Mattis, and I'm going to rely on those two people and others. And if they don't want to do it, it's 100% okay with me. Do I think it works? Absolutely. Okay, so I have no problem with anything that Trump just said there. In fact, as we spoke about a little bit earlier on the program, the fact is that there are a lot of people in the intelligence community who disagree with Mattis. Mattis doesn't have a lot of experience with waterboarding since he was at Department of Defense. He was not at CIA. So good for, good for Donald Trump here. I, I don't think there's any problem with anything that Donald Trump just said with regard to this. Okay, now we get to some bad Trump, unfortunately. Unfortunately, I, w I wish that every day were good Trump, nothing but good Trump. And I will say that I think 75% of the stuff he's done is good. I think 25% of the stuff he's done is bad. I think 80% of the stuff he says is silly, and I think 20% is good. So if you just pay attention to what he does, what he does, he's doing a lot of really good stuff. If you pay attention to what he says, okay, so he so on Twitter, he's decided that you know, he can't just say, we're building the wall and I'm keeping my promise. Instead, he feels the necessity to smack around Mexico a little bit more. So he tweets, the U.S. has a $60 billion trade deficit with Mexico. It has been a one-sided deal from the beginning of NAFTA with massive numbers of jobs and companies lost. If Mexico is unwilling to pay for the badly needed wall, then it would be better to cancel the upcoming meeting. So in other words, he's now connecting NAFTA, which he hates, with the with the wall, and he's saying that if you're not going to pay for the wall, then I'm going to cave and I'm going to destroy NAFTA. Also, I hate NAFTA anyway. NAFTA is terrible. So a few things to talk about here. One, who cares whether Mexico, quote unquote, pays for the wall? Who really like really? Why is that a big deal? Whether Mexico, I understand that there's this vindictive need to make Mexico pay for the wall and all of this, but it's not that much money. It really isn't, and. I just want the thing built, and Trump is getting himself into ancillary issues that don't matter because of all this, we have to make Mexico pay for the wall. So Mexico, naturally, they came, they came forward and they said, fine, we'll cancel the upcoming meeting. We don't have to have a meeting. You want to cancel NAFTA, you go right ahead and do it, but we don't have to have that meeting. When he talks about the, the trade deficits and all this, a couple quick points of information. One, trade deficits don't matter. Trade deficits do not matter. You have a trade deficit with every store you buy from. Does that mean you shouldn't buy from those stores? Does it make you poor because you're buying from a place that you want to buy from? Of course not. 
We all have personal trade deficits with a bevy of players out there. Does that mean that we are suddenly poor? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that you're engaged in voluntary trade. The supposed trade deficit with Mexico just means that we're buying lots of product from Mexico and that a lot of the money that we're investing in Mexico is coming back to us in the form of, of capital surplus. It's called capital account surplus. You can't spend American dollars in Mexico, and so they're going to have to use those, dollar, those dollars someplace. The big problem that we have with regard to trade deficits is not the trade deficit itself. It's that the government keeps raising debt and raising debt by selling bonds. So what happens is that we end up selling bonds. So what happens is that there's a trade deficit with Mexico. Now they have a surplus of dollars. Instead of taking that surplus of dollars and investing in American businesses, which is normally what happens, instead of doing that, they're taking those dollars and they're buying U.S. debt. So that's, you know, the, the big problem there is the government, as always. The big problem is the government. As far as the idea that NAFTA has made us poorer, that's absolute nonsense. The fact is that NAFTA has made us significantly richer because all of the jobs that fled to Mexico, all of those and more would have fled to China. The reason that there's this regional North American trade block in which people invest is because you can make a car partially in Mexico, ship that same car up to Jackson, up to Jackson, Mississippi, and then you can take that and then you can take that car and sell it at a, at a warehouse in, in California, right? The point is that we have a physically contiguous territory with Mexico. We don't with China. So if you're going to, if, you, if you're a car manufacturer, you'd prefer to be able to find cheap labor on the continent. It, it cuts down on shipping costs. It allows you to actually put factories that are slightly more expensive in the United States. If they had to produce all this stuff in China, instead of building another factory in the United States and shipping it between Mexico and the United States, instead of doing that, they would build the stuff in China, ship it to Korea, and then maybe ship it out to the United States. You actually create jobs because of all of this, even in the manufacturing sector that wouldn't otherwise exist. It's actually really short-sighted economically to look at to look at NAFTA this way, there, there hasn't been this giant sucking sound taking jobs that would have stayed in America except for NAFTA. Those jobs were leaving anyway because they were very expensive jobs. Mex they're just going to Mexico because Mexico is nearest to the United States. Plus, if Donald Trump actually wants to cut down on illegal immigration, the worst way to cut down on illegal immigration, it turns out, is to destroy the economy of our southern neighbor. If you want an unstable Mexico, like even more unstable than it is now, if you want Mexico completely unstable with a crappy economy, and you think that's going to have no impact on the number of people rushing to get through the border, you're out of your mind. It'll take years to build this thing, by the way. So it's not like tomorrow the border is secure. It's going to take a while. If you destroy the economy of Mexico, at the same time you're hurting the economy of the United States, that's really, really dumb. So this is bad Trump. It's very silly. And again, there's no reason for doing this other than Trump has these misperceptions that become policy. And this is one of the problems for, for Trump. Sometimes he comes up with good policy based on bad ideas, based on bad rationales. And we'll talk about that more in a second. Plus, we have the mailbag coming up. But in order to see the rest, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and check us out over there. Eight bucks a month will get you a subscription to dailywire.com. If you want an annual subscription, then go over to dailywire.com. You can still get a free signed copy of my book. You become part of the mailbag. So we'll do the live mailbag in just a few minutes here. So you can go over to Daily Wire, subscribe right now, continue watching the episode. And within minutes, you could be asking your question to me and making your life significantly better in every conceivable way. So go to dailywire.com right now and subscribe, or you can listen later at iTunes and SoundCloud. Make sure you subscribe at iTunes. You can leave a review at iTunes as well. We always appreciate that. You are listening to the number one conservative podcast in the United States. Okay, so... As I say, part of the problem for Trump is that he comes up with sometimes good policy based on bad ideas, and that will only take you so far. 
Because at a certain point, your bad ideas are actually going to become bad policy. And that's what's happening with him with regard to NAFTA. He has all these misperceptions about how trade works. That ends up with bad policy. Now, an area where he has a misperception that ends up with good policy is on voter fraud. So he's now saying that he wants to have a federal investigation into voter fraud that will likely end with strength in voter ID laws. Listen, I'm in favor of investigation into voter fraud, period, regardless of what you think happened, because I think that voter fraud is a bad thing. And I don't think that the government, I don't think the government of the United States should be predicated on the idea that that Norm Coleman can be screwed out of a Senate seat through voter fraud in Minnesota. I think that voter fraud actually does matter. It's not three to five million, as Trump is saying. That's a bunch of nonsense. But based on his bad ideas, he's making good policy. But just because in this particular case he's doing that, that doesn't mean every bad idea ends with good policy. Very often... Usually, bad ideas end with bad policy. So Donald Trump is talking about voter fraud, and he continues to insist that voter fraud is widespread, three to five million votes. He continues to say that he, and not that if he had campaigned differently, he would have won the popular vote. Not the popular vote doesn't matter. That's not the system we work under. He continues to maintain he actually won the popular vote. You're all just delusional. There were three to five million illegal voters in the United States, which neglects to answer a particular question that I posed yesterday. If there were three to five million illegal voters in the United States, why are they all voting in California and New York? Right? If, you're, if you're a genius voter fraud guy and you want to rig the election, wouldn't you go to, you know, the swing states, like the places that actually matter? Why would you drive up the vote count in California and New York? He actually said he only cares about voter fraud in California and New York. Well, yeah, okay, so here is Donald Trump. You have people that are registered who are dead, who are illegals, okay, that's true. who are in two states. You have people registered His in daughter. two states. They're registered in a New York Steve and a Bannon. New Jersey. They vote twice. There are millions of votes, in my opinion. Now, I'm going to do an investigation. You're David, now, David, you're, David, now David. you're now president of David, the United States. I'm, when you well, say of course, it's, it's, and I want the we, voting process to be legitimate. But now, what I'm asking, what I'm asking, when, that, when you say, in your opinion, millions of illegal votes... That is something that is extremely fundamental to our functioning democracy, a sure, fair and free sure, election. Sure. You say you're going to launch an investigation sure, into this. done. What you have presented so far has been debunked. It's been called has false. It? I Take called, a look at the Pew report. I called the author of the Pew report last night, and he told me that they found no evidence really? of voter then fraud. Really? Then why did he write the report? He said no evidence of voter Excuse fraud. Me. Then why did he write the report, so according to Pew report? Then he's... Then he's groveling again. You know, I always talk about the reporters that grovel when they want to write something that you want to hear, but not necessarily millions of people want to hear or have to hear. So you've launched an investigation. We're going to launch an investigation to find out. And then the next time, and, and I will say this, of those votes cast, none of them come to me. None of them come to me. They would all be for the other side. None of them come to me. But when you look at the people that are registered, dead, illegal, and two states, and some cases maybe three states, uh, we have a lot to look into. Okay, so let me start with this Pew thing that he keeps talking about. So this is not correct. There is no study that shows 14% of all votes cast in 2008 were cast by non-citizens. That's what he's talking about. If that were true, that would mean virtually everybody in the country legally voted in 2008. There were like 22 million non-citizens in 2010 in the United States. If 14% of all people who voted in 2008 voted illegally, that would have been 18 million fraudulent votes. Okay, so that is probably inaccurate. Okay, the, the study that came out in 2008 actually came out in 2012, and it doesn't talk about non-citizens voting or registering to vote. What it found is that one in every eight voter registrations are inaccurate or no longer valid. So it's possible that voter fraud could be per- perpetrated on those accounts, presumably, but it didn't find evidence of actual voter fraud. 
And so David Becker, who's the guy who wrote the report, he said, we found millions of out-of-date registration records due to people moving or dying, but found no evidence that voter fraud resulted. Here's a perfect example. He says, you know, Trump says people are double registered and they're voting twice. Okay, two people that Trump knows are double registered. Steve Bannon is apparently registered to vote in two states, which is not legal. Did he vote twice in the last election cycle? I mean, I wouldn't put it past Steve, but I really doubt it. Okay, Tiffany Trump is also registered to vote in two states. Kellyanne Conway came out and said that's not true. She's lying. It is true. She's registered to vote in two separate states. Does that mean that voter fraud happened? Are those four illegal votes or two illegal votes? No, that's not, that's not how any of this works. So Trump is pushing a false narrative, you know, stuff that can't be, can't be proved. He's doing it based on actually crazy stories even. So on, this is from the New York Times yesterday. On Monday, President Trump gathered House and Senate leaders in the state dining room for a get-to-know-you reception, served them tiny meatballs and pigs in a blanket, and quickly launched into a story meant to illustrate what he believes to be rampant, unchecked voter fraud. Trump kicked off the meeting by retelling his debunked claim he would have won the popular vote if not for three to five million ballots cast by illegals. When one of the Democrats protested, Trump said he was told the story by the very famous golfer Bernard Langer, whom he described as a friend. In the emerging Trump era, the story was a memorable example of how an off-the-cuff yarn became prime policy. The three witnesses recall the story this way. Mr. Langer, a 59-year-old native of Bavaria, Germany, a winner of the Masters twice and of more than 100 events on major professional golf tours around the world, was standing in line at a polling place near his home in Florida on Election Day. This is according to Trump, when an official informed Langer he would not be able to vote. Ahead of and behind Langer were voters who did not look as if they should be allowed to vote, Trump said, according to staff members, but they were nonetheless permitted to cast provisional ballots. The president threw out names of Latin American countries the voters might have come from, which is kind of racist. Okay, You don't get to say it doesn't look like this person can vote. They're brown. right? It doesn't look like this person is able to vote. They have a, they have a Spanish accent. Okay, I, I mean, I'm from California. There are lots of people who live in California who have accents that are Spanish or Mexican or from Salvador, and they are United States citizens who can vote. Okay, it's an asinine statement that, that there's people who look like they're not able to vote. It's ridiculous. Mr. Langer, whom Trump described as a supporter, left feeling frustrated, he said. The anecdote was greeted with silence, and Trump was prodded to change the subject by Ryan Priebus. <laughs> there's one additional problem. Langer is a German citizen with permanent residence status. He is barred from voting, according to his daughter. He's a citizen of Germany, she said. He is not a friend of President Trump's. I don't know why, why he would talk about him. She said her father was busy and wouldn't be able to answer any questions. So Trump is telling these kinds of stories. When I say bad ideas lead to bad policy in many cases... This is a case where bad ideas lead to a whatever policy, an okay policy, as far as an investigation into voter fraud. But that doesn't mean that the lie is worth being told or that the misinformation should be promulgated. Bernard Langer has now put out this statement. He says, unfortunately, the report in The New York Times and other news outlets was a mischaracterization by the media. The voting situation reported was not conveyed from me to President Trump, but rather was told to me by a friend. I then relayed the story in conversation with another friend who shared it with the person with ties to the White House. From there, this was misconstrued. I am not a citizen of the United States and cannot vote. It is a privilege to live in the United States. I am blessed to call America my home. I have no further comments at this time. So somebody screwed up the story. But bottom line is that the story itself is hearsay, hearsay, hearsay. And again, no evidence whatsoever. And what this really comes down to is that for Trump, it isn't really about voter fraud, right? Trump never made voter fraud a key issue of his. What this is truly about for Donald Trump is his ego. Donald Trump is a petty narcissist. There's this, there's this sort of 40 chess theory that's going around that Trump is trolling the media by, by saying all of these narcissistic things, then they go nuts, and then he passes another piece of policy while they're not watching. 
That's, that's really kind of complicated for what I think is a very simple Occam's razor solution. Donald Trump is a petty narcissist, and the media can't stand anything that remotely is Republican. And both of these things can be true at once. And when I say that he's a petty narcissist, I think the evidence is pretty there on the table. Now, this doesn't mean that he's going to be a terrible president. We've had lots of horrible narcissists. Barack Obama was a horrible narcissist. I don't think that it means you're going to be a horrible president per se, but it's not a great character trait. And again, my evidence that he's a petty narcissist comes in the form of this interview last night. Here's Donald Trump talking about how presidential he is. Here's a picture of the crowd. Now, the audience was the biggest ever. But this crowd was massive. Look how far back it goes. This crowd was massive. And I would actually take that camera and take your time if you want to know the truth. One thing this shows is how far over they go here. Look, look how far this is. <laughs> this goes all the way down here, all the way down. Nobody sees that. You don't see that in the pictures. Okay, so that, there's Donald Trump being a petty narcissist about his crowd size. He actually took David Muir aside to show him a picture of the crowd because he can't stand the idea that his crowd was less well-attended than Obama's, than Obama's crowd at the inauguration. Like, who cares? You're president of the United States. If you still have these petty insecurities, you were just elected president of the United States. For God's sake, man, is there any greater validation of you than being elected to the most powerful position in the history of mankind? Like, what else can we do here to make you feel better about yourself? Is the, but again, it's this petty narcissism. The, the clip about him being presidential is, is this one, him talking about how presidential he is. I don't want to change too much. Um, I've had a wonderful life and wonderful success. I want to make this a great success for the American people and for the people that put me in this position. So I don't want to change too much. So I can be the most presidential person ever, other than possibly the great Abe Lincoln, all right? I can be the most presidential person, but I may not be able to do the job nearly as well if I do that. Okay, yeah, no, it, this is not 40 chess gang, okay? He's a petty narcissist. He's, he can be the most presidential other, maybe than Lincoln, maybe than Lincoln, but you never know. Maybe he can surpass Lincoln as the most presidential guy ever, but he's not going to change anything. But maybe he can be more presidential than George Washington. Yes, maybe he can be more presidential than Thomas Jefferson. Maybe he can be more presidential than Dwight Eisenhower. Maybe he can be more presidential... Then, you know, the, then Ronald's, come on, come the hell on. It's just, I'm sorry, it's ridiculous stuff. Now, does that have any bearing on anything? Not particularly. But there is this, this notion that's been built up about, you know, when he says lies about voter fraud or when he says things about his crowd size. There's this notion that's been built up on the right side of the aisle that we don't care if he lies. Now, I'm not of the mind that lies are good or that lies become good just because it's something on our side. The reason I say this is because there's an article today. John Nolte at Daily Wire, we had him write a similar article. John wanted to write it, and we said sure, um, because I, I appreciated the honesty. There's a similar article at Ace of Spades today called How Losing My Political Values Helped Me Gain My Freedom. And the entire article is basically about how having no values is now a liberating thing. The central argument is this. I literally don't care what Donald Trump does because nothing he can do is worse than what they've already done. He says the left with their smears, their witch hunts, their slanders, their insults, their riots, their violence, their weaponizing of the federal bureaucracy. There are no rules anymore because the left only applies them one way. And in doing so, they've left what was once a civil compact between the parties in smoldering ruin. And then this person concludes, I no longer have any investment in any particular political value save one. The rules created by the left will be applied to the left as equally impunitively as they've applied them to the right. And when they beg for mercy, I'll begin to reconsider or maybe not because F these people. 
I don't care if Trump is lying. They created this Frankenstein. They own it. I am free of all obligation. No, you're not. You're not free of all obligation to be a decent person or to hold politicians accountable for their lies just because the other side lies. And here are a few arguments against that. Number one, the left did not set up these rules. Okay, God or the Kantian imperative or basic decency set up the rule you're not supposed to lie to other human beings as a general matter. It's one thing if you're saying there's a Nazi at the front door and a Jew in the basement, do you lie to the Nazi? That is a different story than do you lie about crowd size and justify that because, hey, the left does it too. Okay, those rules were not set up by the left. Those rules were set up as part of a compact. And just because the left breaks the compact doesn't mean that you now get to lie to people. It is a fundamental disrespect of other human beings to lie to them when it's not the most dire circumstance. Second of all, the left lying, it doesn't make your lies better. Just because David Muir lies about the March for Life doesn't mean that it's okay when Donald Trump lies about things. That's silly. Okay, I remember when we fumed, we, we don't just, here's the thing, we don't just dislike the left because the left is the left, because they hold leftist values. It's because the left doesn't believe truth is a value. It's because the left thinks that truth is relative. It's because the left thinks that the ends justify the means. You become a member of the left when you say truth is not a value. There are people who are liberal who believe in truth, but the left doesn't believe in truth. The left believes the collective does, it trumps the individual, and if that's true, then it's more important that the collective get what it needs than that the individual right to the truth be respected. If the right believes the same thing, then the right is not the right anymore. The right is now the left. Also, why bother having a republic if lies are totally cool? The whole point of having a republic is that we are given information, we judge the information, we judge the people, and then we determine whether or not we want to vote for them. But if we can just lie to people because we want to get what we want to get, then why not just have a dictatorship? Why not just make Trump king? That's not an actual suggestion, Milo. Okay, I'm not, but why exactly not, why shouldn't you, right? I mean, if, if it's fine for him to lie, if it's fine for him to cheat, if it's fine for him to steal, so long as he gives you what he wants, screw democracy, screw republicanism, screw the Constitution, screw all, who cares? What's the point? And why would you care if Obama lies to you? You're just angry that he's lying in favor of something you don't like. Finally, you know, lies are only justified, as I say, when you have no other choice. I don't believe we're at the point in American politics or with Americans that all Americans must be lied to in order for them to vote for you. I don't think that's true. If I thought that, then really, as I say, the republic would, would essentially be dead. And I don't think that we're there quite yet. Okay, time for some stuff I like and then some things I hate and a mailbag. Okay, so stuff I like we're doing. Uh, the left is, is firmly convinced that Donald Trump is Hitler, that he's Hitlerian. So... The, this is a, I've been doing dictator books all week, and finally we get to, uh, uh, we finally get to Hitler, the, the king of all the dictators, uh, and uh, this one is a book by a guy named uh, Richard, uh, Richard Evans, and it's called The Coming of the Third Reich. Uh, I, I am much more fascinated, actually, with how Hitler came to power than I am with Hitler in power. Hitler in power was a, a vicious, evil piece of garbage and he acted very much like a lot of other dictators did, which is he would just sort of pick off the issue tree. He would, he would say that he was on the right some days and he was on the left other days. He would polarize the enemy, who were naturally the Jews and the communists, and, and he would then kill them. That's, that's actually less interesting to me because most dictators tend to be people who are dictators, right? They do what they want to do. What's more interesting is how does a democracy, how does the Weimar Republic fall into dictatorship? And this book is a really good sort of tracing of how that happens. What are the factors that lead to the rise of dictatorship? This is what concerned me about this election cycle, not Trump or Hillary per se, but the American people. What are we willing to tolerate in our leadership? And are we willing to just go along with whoever is king of the moment? Because that is a dangerous phenomenon. The fact is, as I've said before, virtually all democracies have at one point or another fallen into dictatorship. A huge percentage of them have. The United States very narrowly avoided it with Woodrow Wilson and FDR. 
FDR is as close to a dictator as we've had, and he was a benevolent dictator, and he was elected, obviously, so he wasn't quite a dictator. But, yeah, it's, it wasn't, I mean, if, if you look at how Mussolini ta- thought of FDR, he thought of FDR as the American dictator. And, but Italy was a dictatorship, Spain was a dictatorship, Germany obviously was a dictatorship, Japan was a dictatorship, China is still a dictatorship. A dictatorship was seen as the wave of the future. Mussolini said that believing in republicanism, like a small R republic, in, in the 1930s was like believing in the gaslight in the era of electricity. It was the wave of the future, fascism. And so this is a fascinating book, The Coming of the Third Reich, about how a democracy goes dictatorial and why that matters. Okay, other things that I like. So this is a pretty great story. Apparently, some Trump supporters went to have lunch at this restaurant and they were, and the waitress was this black lady who was a, a part of the women's march. And they had a bill that was like 72 bucks. And then they gave a $450 tip on a $72 bill. And the note that they left said, quote, we may come from different cultures and may disagree on certain issues, but if everyone would share their smile and kindness, just like your beautiful smile, our country will come together as one people, not race, not gender, just American. God bless. Which is just fantastic. That's just fantastic. Good for them. And again, if we all had this philosophy, then I think that we would all be better off. The, the waitress said, this definitely reshaped my perspective. Republican, Democrat, liberal are all subcategories to what we are experiencing. It instills a lot of hope. Good for these folks. This is how you cross the political aisles with decency, not with lies. That's how you cross the political aisle. If we lose decency, if we lose truth, then there's nothing left for us to even have a conversation about. And, you know, we try to strive to be, and we don't always achieve, but we try to strive for that. Okay, uh, other things that I like, this is a pretty fantastic story. So uh, Deadspin put out a notice, Deadspin's a sports website, a lefty sports website, uh, and they put out a notice asking for pictures of Ted Cruz playing basketball because there was a story that Ted Cruz was, uh, was going to uh, start an intramural basketball game. And so Ted Cruz trolled them, and he tweeted this. They said, Deadspin said, send us proof of Ted Cruz playing basketball. And Ted Cruz Sent, sent back a tweet that said, what do I win? And it was a picture of Grayson Allen from Duke, who bears a striking resemblance to a young Ted Cruz, right? And Deadspin then immediately responded with, go eat bleep, right? That was how they responded, to which Ted Cruz responded with the, the gif or jif from, uh, from Anchorman. <laughs> it says, boy, that escalated quickly. So they got owned, and it's pretty hilarious. Wikipedia, somebody went and edited the Wikipedia entry for Deadspin uh, so that it said, Deadspin is a website owned by Ted Cruz, <laughs> which is pretty spectacular. Then, to make the story even better, the, the, one of the editors of Deadspin came out and said, I'm only seeing replies from all these people who can't even do a push-up, right? The, 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 it's amazing how many folks on the left do this routine, where they pretend that they're all for civility, and then in reality, they just want to fight people, but they don't actually want to fight people because... Uh, a guy who I'm friendly with, Tim Kennedy, who's an actual MMA fighter and former Navy SEAL, immediately tweeted the guy back with his email address <laughs> and said, if you want to get in the octagon, dude, anytime, anytime. So that's pretty spectacular. Okay, time for a thing that I hate. Okay, so Keith Olbermann, uh, he never had much of a mind to begin with. It's, it's been gone ever since the agriculture school at Cornell. Uh, but he says that now is the time for Donald Trump to resign. Yes, five days after becoming president of the United States, it's time for Donald Trump to I don't know how Keith Olbermann can actually go up from here. See, this is the problem that I have with rock music is when your volume is already at 11, it's very difficult for me to feel the dynamic shift when you move into upper gear. What does upper gear Keith Olbermann look like? I mean, we're five days in. He's already calling for Trump to resign. It's time for Donald Trump to resign as president. <laughs> Admittedly, it's been an interesting couple of days, but for any patriotic American capable of adding two and two and not getting one and a half million, 
this is enough. Trump has proved that not only will he lie to America about anything big or small, but that just as importantly, he will lie to himself about anything big or small. And more troubling yet, he will compel men weaker even than himself to lie on his behalf about anything big or small. And worst of all, the lies will convince some people and they will convince one person, especially dangerous in particular. It's just, it's, it's hysteria, 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 hysteria. If you actually want to be a, a decent check on Donald Trump's excesses, and I think that everyone should be, then you actually are going to be required to not be a nutcase. Calling for Donald Trump to resign five days after he becomes president is just another reason why Americans are not going to listen to you when Trump actually does something bad. And I'm not here to save what is left of Keith Olbermann's credibility because there's nothing left. But it, it is just a word of advice to the media. Again, if you're on Spinal Tap 11 all the time, what happens when Trump actually does something egregious, not just mouths off about the size of his inaugural crowd? Okay, a few entries from the mailbag. Let's do it. Okay, so... Armand writes, hey, Ben, how do we decide what is and isn't a right? Do you think there are any rights we should have that we don't? I don't think there are any rights that we should have that we don't because the way that I define a right is that it pre-exists government. A right is defined as something that you have in the absence of somebody else harming you. So I have a right to do X because you don't have a right to harm me when I do X. My view of rights is pretty simple. You have a right to do whatever you want so long as you're not hitting somebody else in the face. Right? It's, it's the basic John Stuart Mill view of, of government. Uh, that doesn't mean you should exercise your rights in the wrong ways. We can do that, right? I mean, you can exercise your right to do a lot of stupid things. And I'm not a marijuana fan. I've never used it, and I think the people who do use it tend to be kind of smelly. But what I will say is that as long as nobody else is, is being harmed by your use of marijuana, I don't see why you don't have a right to use that. Should you? No. Okay, Amy says, facts don't care about your feelings, but do alternative facts care about your feelings? Alternative facts certainly care about your feelings because alternative facts are called lies and lies are told in order to assuage feelings. Okay, Morris says, do you think the NFL should tell Lady Gaga not to go on an anti-Trump rant at the Super Bowl halftime show? And if she does, do you think the NFL will praise it or just let it go? Well, if she does, the NFL will just let it go. They're not going to praise it. Uh, they should certainly tell her not to do it. Of course, they're a private organization. They have every right to protect their brand. They have every right to protect... What, what, okay, the NFL already has a pretty flawed brand because... Well, you know, they've had NFL players knock women out in elevators, and they've had, and they've had a steroid problem for a while, and they've had enough players arrested to fill a small prison in South Dakota. But, but they certainly have every right to say to Lady Gaga, listen, we have half the audience here that voted for Donald Trump, maybe more than half. Why are you alienating our audience? And if you're, if you're not going to sign a contract that pledges not to do that, then we're just not going to use you. First of all, I'm always puzzled as to why they would hire Lady Gaga. Do they really think most of the men watching, or, or even their wives, are big Lady Gaga fans? If they really wanted to do something smart, they'd hire a country star. It's an NFL game. It's not Lady Gaga and Katy Perry. Okay, James says, I was wondering what your views are on decriminalizing drug charges and other nonviolent crimes like prostitution and gambling. What are your solutions to the large incarceration rates we face in America? As I say, I, I've been in favor of decriminalization with regard to drug possession for a long time. It depends on the drug. You know, there are certain drugs that inherently harm other people because it makes you violent. Uh, but... You know, as far as gambling, I'm, I'm not in favor of criminalization of gambling. As far as prostitution, I'm very much in favor of criminalization of the activities associated with prostitution. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of the, the idea that, you know, 
human trafficking, which is heavily involved in prostitution in many cases, under, uh, taking advantage of underage people for prostitution. But if there's a 25-year-old hooker who wants that to be her business, uh, I'm not sure that the government has a role in that. I'll admit that on a societal level, I'm torn on it. But on a governmental level, I'm pretty libertarian about this stuff. I just think that it's society's, it's society's obligation not to, uh, not to promulgate such behavior. It's not really government's obligation to, to get involved in such behavior. Mark says, hey, Ben, can you explain the roots of anti-Semitism in the United States? I grew up in an extremely rural area where there were very few Jews, but the Jews I knew didn't seem to be any different than me or my family. I've heard some of the history of anti-Semitism in Europe dating back to the Middle Ages, but since the U.S. is a fairly young country in the grand scheme of things, I don't understand its foundation here. Well, the truth is that anti-Semitism in the United States has been an extraordinarily weak phenomenon for the entire history of the United States. So, there was anti-Semitism, and it was largely an import from Europe, but anti-Semitism in the United States has never really been a massive issue or problem. It's, it's largely been a European import. Some, some of it was a backlash against foreigners. There is a, in, in United States history, there's a lot of backlash to foreigners. It would be a wave of Germans, and people were anti-German, a wave of Irish, and people were anti-Irish. There was some of that with regard to Jews, but there wasn't the particularized anti-Semitism that you would see over in Europe. That's beginning to change because... The left has decided that, that Israel is a cancer on the world. Uh, it's also begun to change because uh, the population of the United States has changed in terms of a lot of the people who are coming in from, from countries where anti-Semitism is more of a way of life. But you know, the U.S. brand of anti-Semitism has always been a lot milder a strain than it was in Europe, largely because of the, the history of the Catholic Church in Europe, uh, largely because of the history of, of anti-Semitism in Europe, which, which springs from... Uh, Again, it does, I mean, there's no way to avoid it. It does spring largely from the from the early history of the Catholic Church for the first 1500, 1700 years uh, of the Catholic Church. Okay, Lane says conservatives often argue that individuals, communities, churches, and nonprofits should take care of our nation's poor rather than the government. The left typically counters by pointing out many times these institutions fail to do this. How do you think individuals can better serve and care for the community's poor to reduce the need for government intervention? So the left actually never points out exactly when institutions fail to do this. The left always find some guy who wasn't taken care of, but they never explain why the church wasn't able to do it. Did he belong to a church? Did he go to the community? Did he put up a Kickstarter? They never actually come up with the solution to this particular question. Really, they don't do this. Instead, they just sort of say, there are too many for the private sector to take care of it, which is actually not true. The fact is, during the San Francisco fire of the early 20th century, that entire city was rebuilt with private money. And people were given money by charity. I mean, the, the, the American people are an extraordinarily charitable people. And having this giant welfare system that only incentivizes people not to work and creates a massive overweening bureaucracy, it's really, it is really counterproductive. You actually create fewer people who are capable of giving charity or willing to give charity. Uh, Gabe says, Ben, I've noticed your Trump impression has improved. How often do you practice it? Does it piss off your wife? Um, no, it doesn't piss off my wife. She thinks it's kind of funny. Uh, I don't think my Trump has improved at all. I think my Trump is still garbage. Um, I'm very proud of my Obama. My Obama. I'm in in in. Oh, that's the only sense in which I'm sorry to see Obama go. Is my Obama impersonation is significantly better than my Trump impersonation. I can do a pretty solid Barack Obama, but Donald Trump is a little more difficult. The people demand it, but I don't know if I can supply it well. It's, it's, I can do the hand motions, but it ain't, it ain't that great. Might be better than Alec Baldwin, but that's not saying particularly much. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the week. Soon enough, folks, we will have a Friday show, and that will be exciting. But sadly for you, we do not until for tomorrow. So that takes us to the weekend. I hope you do have a wonderful weekend. We will be back on Monday with all of the latest chaos, breaking news, and glory of the Trump administration. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. 
We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 